Okay, Revelation, very quick recap. We're looking at this book that I'm assuming was written at the end of the first century, the time of great persecution in the church. It was written by John, one of Jesus' disciples, as he was in, uh, in um, what's, what's the word? On the island of Patmos. What was exile? That's the word I was thinking of. In exile on the island of Patmos. And uh, I'm assuming that as a Jew, he wrote in a Jewish form. That is, he used symbols and images that would have been familiar to the people he was writing to. And he also wrote in a Jewish form as well called apocalyptic, which tells a dramatic story using vivid images and symbols to try and help people to understand why things are the way they are and what will happen in the future. And over the last four weeks, I've tried to unpack some of those signs and symbols. There are seven sets of seven in the book. We looked at two of those sevens, the seven seals and the seven trumpets. The seven seals speak to the church about authenticity of faith, that this persecution was coming in order to show the genuineness of their faith. The seven trumpets speak to the world. They are warning signs that people need to turn to God. Seven seals and seven trumpets. Then we looked at uh, what I called the battle for the world. And we looked at the spiritual battle and the way it takes physical form in the world throughout history. We looked at those uh, very vivid images of the dragon and the beasts and the whore of Babylon. And we saw those as different ways of representing evil and the way that Jesus has overcome them on the cross, but how that victory will be finally realized when he comes again. And then next week we looked at the end of the world how God will bring everything to fruition, that history has a purpose. And that purpose is when God is revealed as king of the universe and lord of the world. And we explored some of the ideas surrounding that last week. And we thought about how that will be a time when God will be shown as involved in world events, destroying evil and bringing justice to our world. Well, you might think that's the end of the story, but it isn't the end of the story because there's something more to come. That's why I've entitled this talk, Life After Life After Death. It's not a misprint. It's actually Tom Wright's phrase, Life After Life After Death. But that's what uh, the final chapters of Revelation are uh, all about. Let's just read um, from Revelation 21. I think it's important that we read the text, even though it can be very challenging sometimes. But let's read Revelation 21, and that's going to be the passage I'm going to focus on uh, this evening. Revelation 21. And again, look and listen for the signs and the symbols and the images and what they would have meant to the people who were first hearing these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. 
But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, idolaters, and liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the angel, seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who took me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, and as wide and as high as it is long. We'll just miss the next bit, and then we'll go down to verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light and the Lamb its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter into it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. I want to try and address some of the the, the important questions that people uh, ask about this life that John outlines for us there at the end of the book uh, of of Revelation. I suppose the fundamental questions that people ask are, is there anything after death? And if there is, what might it be like? And actually, that's a very important question, because that question not only determines our eternal destiny, but it also will determine the way we live now. And this is the big message that comes out of Revelation. These things may well point to the future, but John presents them in such a way that he poses the question in our minds, how do we live, therefore, in response to this? Our view of the answers to these questions will affect our attitude and our actions in this life in a very important way. Revelation is future-looking, but it's also rooted in the present. And in these final two chapters of Revelation, which of course are also the final two chapters of the entire Bible, John gives a vision of a future to inspire us how to live now in the present. Revelation is not escapism. Christianity is not escapism. Revelation is encouragement and inspiration. It paints us these magnificent pictures, but always poses the question, what are you going to do in response to it? How are you going to live now? And in Revelation 21 especially, we have this amazing picture of life after life after death, as I've called it. Let me just say, uh, dispel some myths um, to start with. Some myths about heaven, inverted commas. Let me just use uh, this as an illustration. One of the most common myths about heaven is what we could call a three-tier universe. Very simply, we have Earth here, we have Heaven up here, 
and we have hell down here. You can tell this came from the Middle Ages. It's not a biblical view of the world, by the way. It came out of the Middle Ages as much as anything else when they were really into hell. Dante's Inferno and all that kind of stuff. And basically, that's the way that most people view the world in which we live. That we live in the middle tier of a three-tier universe. That heaven is up there above us, and hell is down here below us. Now, it has to be said that in recent years, we've more or less forgotten this, and we don't like that idea anymore, so we've dispelled with that. And maybe we could say, we now have a two-tier universe. But that's the idea, that these two are completely separate spheres. There's no passage between the two of them, closed universe, heaven and earth. Now, actually, when you think about it, it's quite a strange thing. When the Bible uses up in terms of heaven, it's not talking about literally going up to heaven. When our kids uh, finish uh, one year at school, we say that in September they're going up a year. Year 70, year 8, year 90, year 10, whatever. That doesn't mean that they're moving their form room necessarily. It might, but it doesn't mean that they're moving their form room from the first floor to the second floor. It's just a way of expressing things, isn't it? We're going up. If somebody gets a a new job, somebody gets promotion, we might say they're going up in the world. It's just an expression of saying something different is happening. And when the Bible uses it, that's what it's talking about. The biblical writers never, they wouldn't have understood what we meant by this. Because they didn't see life that way. They didn't see the world that way. They did use heaven as expressing God's rule and God's reign as being something different from earth. But they didn't have it in that kind of three-tier dimension. So that's the first myth about heaven. That heaven's up there and we're down here. And that the point of Christianity is to get us from down here up there. The second uh, idea that uh, the Bible does not teach... Very popular idea, this, is uh, the release of the soul. Now, let me see if I can picture this. Okay, here's... I'm no artist, by the way. (laughs) As you will find out. There we go. That's my best attempt at a human being. Okay, we, we are here. We are physical bodies. And the idea is that deep within us, somewhere, is the soul. And that our bodies are like a prison. They they prevent the soul from being released. This is pure platonic philosophy, Greek philosophy, this is. But the idea is that when we die, two things happen. The body goes into the earth, is buried, or, as we do often today, cremated. But the soul goes up to heaven. And that's the way that actually most people think about life after death today. They see that there are two parts of us. There's a body and a soul. The body goes into the ground and decays. And the soul goes up to be with God in heaven. And therefore, heaven becomes a place of disembodied souls. Floating around in the air in communion with God. There's a a philosophical term for this. It's called dualism. That is dividing up the spiritual and the physical. And we do that ourselves, don't we? We talk about the sacred and the secular. We talk about the physical and the spiritual. 
It's not a biblical concept. (laughs) The Bible didn't see people in that way. It sees us as whole human beings. Salvation is not just saving our souls. It's saving us. It's saving our bodies. It's saving our emotions. But many people see it in this way. It's not a biblical idea. That wasn't what determined the way that Jesus went about ministry. We're not talking about the release of the soul. Third myth about heaven is what I've called the great pub in the sky. When you do as many funerals as Tim and and I do, you kind of hear all these ideas. So you build up quite a collection of different views of what people think about death and what lies beyond death. And do you know what I mean? Somebody will say, oh, he loved the pub. That was his life, you know. And now he's gone to the great pub in the sky. And oh, he loved his football. And I know he's up there now and he's playing in the great football match in the sky. And people, this is the kind of terms that people use to try and describe what they think has happened to the person who has died. Now, I think the problem with this, I mean, firstly, there's no mention of God in this idea. Uh, which is a bit of a problem to start with. But I think the the major problem is that heaven becomes a purely individualistic pursuit. It just is a reflection of what we want it to be like. So if we're into football, we want it to be like a football match. If we're into going down the pub, we want it to be just like a pub. The great pub in the sky, the great football match in the sky, or any of the millions of variations on that theme that some of us have heard over the years and some of us have had to try to express as we've conducted uh, funeral services. Very individualistic. That's the biggest problem with it, as well as being totally person-centered rather than than God-centered. Fourth thing is the mythical land of angels, harps, and clouds. Heaven becomes like a fairy tale with fairy tale characters. You know, the Shrek films are brilliant at expounding this, aren't they? Where... You know, everyone in it becomes a fairy tale character that we can relate to. And many people see heaven in that way. They see heaven as being this, this world of mythical characters. So you have angels and you have harps and people sit around on clouds. It's like transporting into a totally different world. Children's programs are a bit like this, aren't they? I'd love to go into the world of Postman Pat. Isn't it such a lovely existence? You know? Oh, there's the Teletubby world. And it's like a world all of its own, totally cut off from reality. And heaven becomes like that, doesn't it? It becomes like a different world, a different world inhabited with characters. Um, I saw a cartoon of a man who, who was supposedly gone to heaven, and there he was sitting on his cloud, being serenaded by an angel with a harp. And he's sitting there, and the thought bubble on his mind says, I wish I brought a magazine to read. <laughs> And, and that, that's it, isn't it? We think that heaven is just this mythical place. But it's a pretty boring, dull view to see these things, isn't it? And then finally, the final myth is it's the great goal of Christian faith. What I mean by that is that some people define Christian faith as being that, to get people to heaven when they die. Two problems with that. One, again, it becomes individualistic. It becomes about the salvation of individual people. And secondly, it becomes purely future-orientated. It doesn't have much impact on the way that people live now. Revelation paints a picture that is not individualistic, 
Every time you have one of these scenes of worship in Revelation, it's always community represented by these symbols. It's the 24 elders, or it's the two witnesses, or it's the 12 tribes, or it's the 144,000. It's always corporate. It's never individualistic. And secondly, whilst, yes, it does look to a time that is in the future, the challenge is how do we respond now? So these myths do not convey what Revelation conveys. Revelation conveys the idea that what God's purposes are is that he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth, a new kingdom where God's rule is fully, completely worked out. That's how Revelation expresses the hope and goal of the Christian life as realized by the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. Do you know when we pray the Lord's Prayer, what do we pray? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, that's the new heaven and the new earth. At the moment, God's will is being done in heaven. Revelation looks forward to a time when it will be done on earth because there will be no separation of heaven and earth. It also talks about a kingdom, a kingdom where God will rule completely. But these things are rooted in something very important. They are rooted in the bodily resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And again, I'm really indebted to to Tom Wright here, who writes a superb chapter on this. And I, I never thought about it this way before, about the ascension. You know, when Jesus, we might wonder, is it really important that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, it certainly is. And uh, some of you might remember the debates that were going on in the Anglican Church a while ago when David Jenkins was Bishop of Durham and was supposedly denying the resurrection of Jesus and saying it's just a purely spiritual thing. Again, this is not what the Bible teaches. Just give you an example of uh, 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, we won't read the whole passage, um, but he says there in verse 20 at the end of that passage, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, and then he says, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying Christ has been raised from the dead. And it's, when you read the whole passage in context, he clearly believes it was a bodily resurrection. And he says that they, that is the first fruits. That is, what he has done, his believers will do at some point in the future. What he's saying is that just as Jesus rose physically, bodily from the dead, resurrection life, So, at the end, those who believe in Jesus will experience the same thing, physical, bodily resurrection. That's the hope that John communicates in Revelation, the new heaven and the new earth. And then the the ascension, I I was really fascinated by Tom Wright's writing on this. Um, The ascension is an event that we kind of forget in the Christian calendar, really, and I guess that means we don't think it's that important. But in Acts, where that event is recorded, and I've alluded to this verse already in this series, but it's worth saying again. Acts 1, verse 11, Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has, taken from, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. What way did he go into heaven? He went into heaven bodily, as a risen human being who had experienced resurrection. It wasn't some strange ghost that went up to heaven. It wasn't some disembodied spirit that went up to heaven. It was a man who had conquered death. And it says, in the same way he went, you'll see him come back. That is, he will come back bodily, physically. 
And again, that has huge implications for belief about the future. That what we're talking about is something physical, something bodily, not something purely spiritual. It's not the release of the soul. It's the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. Okay, let's just say a few things about specifically how Revelation uh, describes that. Um, I put there in the box, I said to you at the, in my first session on Revelation that there are seven sets of seven in Revelation, seven kind of visions or symbols. The final set of those sevens comes in Revelation 21 and 22. I've called them the seven no mores or the seven promises of the new heaven and the new earth. In Revelation 21 and 22, John tells us seven things that there will not be anything of in the new heaven and the new earth. Some surprising, some not so surprising. Firstly, there'll be no longer any sea. You might think that's a strange one. But um, in, in Jewish culture, the sea was a place of chaos, a place of danger. Remember Jonah and the whale or the big sea creature? <laughs> Because they didn't learn to swim in those days. I don't think they knew how to swim, but they didn't learn to swim because the idea was if the boat was going to go down, you might as well die quickly rather than splash around in the water. So they didn't learn to swim. So the sea was a place of fear, a place of death, a place of chaos. Um, some of the Psalms talk about the great sea monsters. We don't know exactly what they were, but it was obviously something that they were afraid of. So when John says there's not going to be any sea, what he's saying, what he's saying is, look, the things you fear, the things that you're afraid of, the things that cause chaos in your lives, they will be no more in the new heaven and the new earth. So that's why he says there's no sea. There's a river, but there's no sea. No more death or mourning. Well, death is the great enemy, isn't it? The great thing that we fear most. And uh, John says, in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no more death or mourning. That's tremendously encouraging for all of us as human beings. It says there will be no more crying or pain. Again, a common experience of humanity. We all experience pain. We all experience grief. We all experience sadness. John's vision of the new heaven and the new earth is that just as crying and pain are a common experience of humanity in this life, they will not be part of the new heaven and the new earth. It says there'll be no temple. That is, we won't need any symbols anymore. We won't need any statutes or representations. We will be there with Jesus, and we won't need any symbols anymore. There'll be no sun or moon, because there's going to be no night or day, it says. The light of heaven, the new heaven and the new earth, will be the glory of Jesus. There will be no longer any curse. The curse, and you know, Revelation 21, 22 kind of mirrors Genesis 2 and 3 to some extent. And um, there'll be no longer any curse. That is, the thing that caused, that causes all the, this evil and all these issues in the world will be removed. And therefore, there will be no longer any evil or pain or suffering. And there will be no night, it says, because again, it will be lit by God's presence. Let me just unpack some of the implications for some of those things as quickly as I can. What does that say about this new heaven and this new earth? Firstly, it transforms the old heaven and earth into a new cosmos. As I say, the big difference between this new heaven and this new earth, compared to the old heaven and the old earth, is that whilst they are now seen as separate, they will be brought 
together. They'll be brought together. I don't know why, I I just came across this. I've always read the Great Commission in Matthew's Gospel. And uh, I was reading it in Mark's Gospel. And it's really interesting the way that Mark phrases it in chapter 16 and verse 15. Remember, Matthew says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all nations. Listen to how Mark phrases it in chapter 16, verse 15. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Isn't that an interesting way of phrasing it? To all creation. That's the commission that God gave to his people and he gives to us today. That the gospel goes out to all creation, not just humanity, but beyond humanity. God wants to redeem creation. If you think that's a bit of a wacky idea, then Paul talks about it in Romans. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 21, he says there, The creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Paul looks forward to a time when creation will be redeemed as well. And this is an amazing vision that John gives us here of the new heaven and the new earth. That it is the redemption of creation. It is the bringing of heaven and earth together. At the moment, we think of heaven up here, God's presence, us down here where man seems to rule. The new heaven and the new earth abolishes that concept and brings heaven and earth together in one enormous new creation. God's presence and God's rule are joined together in perfect harmony. Now, the challenge for us is how do we go about beginning to help people to see that. Because whilst it says that this will only happen fully in the future, the implication is, through Mark's, what Mark says there and what Paul says, is that we are called to be part of the process of showing people the way that that can begin to happen in the present. When heaven and earth come together, as Jesus did, of course, through his ministry. And now as Jesus' people who are called to minister in Jesus' name, we have the opportunity to do it now. As we go about advancing God's rule in the world through demonstrating the life and the ministry of Jesus in our community, then we are beginning the process of bringing heaven and earth together in this interlocking new creation that God promises will happen at the end. Now some people say, well... We can't do it completely, so why bother? If God's going to do it at the end, why don't we just sit around and wait for it to happen? But that's not the way that I think the New Testament deals with this. The New Testament deals with it by giving us this vision. He's saying, this is what it's going to be like. And then saying to us, now you go out and start to make it happen in Jesus' name. So we're looking forward to a transformed cosmos. The old heaven and the old earth are replaced by a new heaven and a new earth. That means a different relationship between heaven and earth and also a different relationship between God and his people. John uses the image of a bride in uh, verse 2 of chapter 21. Intimate picture of fellowship relationship between God and his people. It leads to a place where God's rule is seen in all its fullness. Difficult ideas to communicate, but let me just read you a a short passage from uh, 
C.S. Lewis's attempt to explain this. Of course, the Narnia Chronicles have probably still remained one of the best ways of trying to explain these concepts in a way that we might be able to relate to. This is an extract from the final one of, uh, Narnia, of the Narnia Chronicles, The Last Battle, um, which kind of gives this image as, um, as uh, Lucy and, and Peter and, and uh, Edmund are on the threshold of Aslan's country, which, of course, is a symbol of, of the new heaven. And they look back at Narnia, and initially they feel a, bit, a sense of loss, that they are moving away from the old earth to a new earth. And um, then they start to engage in, in, in this conversation. Let me just read it to you. Those hills, said Lucy, the nice woody ones and the blue ones behind, aren't they very like the southern border of Narnia? Like, cried Edmund after a moment's silence, why they're exactly like. Look, there's Mount Pyre with its forked head, and there's the pass into Archenland and everything. And yet they're not like, said Lucy. They're different. They have more colours on them and they look further away than I remembered them and they're more, more, oh, I I don't know. More like the real thing, said Lord Diggory softly. Suddenly, Farside the eagle spread his wings, soared 30 or 40 feet up into the air, circled round and then alighted on the ground. Kings and queens, he cried, we have all been blind. We are only beginning to see where we are. From up here, I see it all. Narnia is not dead. This is Narnia. But how can it be, said Peter, for Aslan told us older ones that we should never return to Narnia, and here we are. Yes, said Eustace, and we saw it all destroyed and the sun put out. And it's all so different, said Lucy. The eagle is right, said Lord Diggory. Listen, Peter, when Aslan said you could never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of. But that was not the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and always will be here. Just as our own world, England and all, is only a shadow or copy of something in Aslan's real world. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course it is different, as different as a real thing is from a shadow or as as waking life is from heaven. He's trying to convey in those images the sameness and yet the differentness between the old heaven and earth and the new heaven and earth. It's different yet the same. There's continuity yet discontinuity. There are shadows that they become a reality. We move on. Secondly, it transforms our imperfect affections into perfect relationships. You know, this... This kind of bringing together of heaven and earth is true of our relationships too. In verse 7 of Revelation 21, John gives us a picture of a relationship between the Father and the Son. That's not the only place that's used in Scripture, but in here it takes on a new dimension. And that's a question that people often ask, isn't it? What will relationships be like in the new heaven and the new earth? Paul tried to understand that when he wrote at the end of that very famous passage on love, in 1 Corinthians 15, and I'll just read that quickly. Verse 12, Now we see but a poor reflection, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Paul describes the difference between the old and the new as being like a mirrored reflection compared to face to face. 
A mirror is a very close resemblance, but it's not perfect. Face-to-face is a perfect relationship. All our relationships in the current heaven and earth are flawed in some way by our imperfect affections of human beings. In the new cosmos, they will be perfect. Just as there will be a huge new relationship between heaven and earth, the macro level, so there will be a new relationship between human beings at the micro level. And that will be reflected in the new heaven and the new earth, in the relationships between God and his people, in the relationships people with one another. I guess the removal of death and mourning and crying and pain has something to do with that. The removal of the curse has something to do with that, as those things all scar our relationships. But mainly our relationship with God, as that becomes perfected, so our relationships with one another do as well. Let me just address two pastoral issues here because I know people ask me these kind of questions. One of the issues people ask you about is, will we recognize each other in the new heaven and the new earth? Difficult question, isn't it? It's particularly difficult because heaven becomes the focus of that for many people. For many people, heaven is just about being reunited with loved ones who they have lost. It's a difficult question to answer because the Bible doesn't address it directly. And it's uh, difficult to answer as well because we can't really get to grips with the new realities of the new heaven and earth. But let me just say this. Jesus was posed a trick question by the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection. The question was this. A woman is married. Her husband dies. She marries another man. He dies. She marries another man. He dies. She marries another man. And they go through it, and they end up where this woman has had seven husbands in this life. The trick question the Sadducees pose is, whose husband, uh, whose wife will she be in the resurrection life? There's a trick question for you. And uh, Jesus' reply is, no one's. And he goes on to kind of say, whilst there will be recognition in heaven, relationships will be on a totally different plane. There will be no marriage in heaven, he says, partly because there's no need of procreation, but also because relationships will be expressed at a different level. Love will not just be expressed between a man and a woman in a, in a, in a, a kind of small relationship. Love will be expressed in, out, throughout the whole community. And that's the only kind of evidence I can point to in terms of that. Again, we're at the kind of continuity, discontinuity. Yes, we'll recognize each other, but hey, there'll be a difference in the way we relate to one another. The other kind of little hint we have on this is um, when Jesus rose from the dead, he was clearly recognized by his disciples, but there was also a difference. He had a physical body that needed food, um, but there was still something different about him. Same yet different. And again, there are suggestions that there were different ways of relating to one another in the way that Jesus related to the disciples post-resurrection. Kind of connected with that. And again, this is a question people sometimes ask. Jesus, after his resurrection, apparently the, the Gospels tell us that he still had the nail prints in his hands. Remember Thomas? He did put his finger in the nail prints. Some people say, well, hang on a minute. We've got a new body. This sounds a bit like the old one. You know? I hope when I go to heaven, I won't have those scars. 
I won't have that big nose. I won't have those long legs or short legs. I won't be short. I won't be tall. We all hope that it will be very different. But what's clear from the teaching of Scripture is, again, it'll be the same and yet different. I don't know if uh, all you girls are going to look like supermodels when you get to heaven. And I don't know if all us guys are going to look like Bruce Willis when we get to heaven. But, um, (laughs) (laughs) But what we can say is that there'll be a sameness and a differentness. There will be continuity with how we look and how we relate, but there will also be something different, a deeper, much more profound level of, uh, of relationship. Can I just share this, this story? Um, some of you know Cindy Stokes, and uh, where's she gone? Oh, there's, there's Margaret. <laughs> I couldn't see Margaret and Tim and I. Cindy suffered very severely in the last five, six years of her life. She had emphysema. She had other problems as well, but she was entirely chair-bound for five years, and I used to go and visit her um, on a regular basis and take communion, and we used to have great conversations together. We often talked about death, and we planned her funeral many, many times before she actually died uh, two or three years ago. When, uh, when she, we were preparing her funeral shortly before she died, she said to me, she said, when, when, I go, when you carry me into, into the church at that funeral, she said, I want you to play Chariots of Fire. <laughs> I said to her, why do you want that? I knew the answer, really. And she said, it just reminds me, she said, that this body that is old and worn out and so limited, causing me so much pain, she couldn't even move from one chair to the next. She just sat in the chair until someone could move her for five years. She said, I just want you to know that when I die and I get my new body, it will be as though I can run 100 meters like Eric Little did in Chariots of Fire. And I thought it was actually quite a lovely way of trying to communicate the newness and yet the similarity the sameness and yet the difference. We're trying to use human concepts. You know, we're using different ways of thinking, aren't we, in this world compared to the next? And that's the only way I can really explain it. Um, we'll have to move on very quickly, or I'm not going to finish by ten past seven, and I promised I would. Thirdly, we transform our ancient traditions into a new reality. You know, in these verses, John uses some ancient ideas about this new heaven and this new earth and what this cosmos will be like. He talks about Jerusalem, the holy city, 12 gates, 12 tribes, 12 apostles, the lamb. He gives measurements, which are always in multiples of 12. So you have 12, 12,000, 144. And all of this, of course, would have chimed with his Jewish readers. But they take on a whole new meaning and application. And what he's saying is, these ancient traditions that have kind of led you to faith, And tradition's not all bad. Tradition is an important part of of bringing us to faith. But he said these ancient traditions will be replaced by a new reality. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 says, The reality is found in Christ. The reality is found in Christ. And so the picture of this new cosmos, this new heaven and this new earth, is where those ancient traditions may still be familiar to us, but they will take on a whole new reality as we see the full meaning of them and what they really meant. You see, some people want to take this passage literally. Some people want to see the physical restoration of Jerusalem in the political land of Israel right now here in this world. Some people want to try and calculate from these figures how big that city is going to be. But John's message is the old categories don't apply anymore. A new reality has come. A city is a symbol of something. 
It's a symbol of reality. It's a symbol not of a disembodied existence, but of a new reality. It's a symbol of community. It's where communities are formed. It's a symbol of security. It says in, in there that the gates don't need to be closed anymore because it's a symbol of security. It's a symbol of beauty, all these vivid imageries and the jewels that make up this city. And these will be expressed in a way we can't really understand at the moment. They will be seen in categories we don't understand now. A city, incidentally, is also a place of work. And the clear implication from other passages is that this new life in this new heaven and this new earth will not be sitting around being bored out of our minds. It will include activity that we find incredibly fulfilling. And this glory of this city will be seen most of all in the way that God is there and we can enjoy unhindered fellowship with him. God's glory. The glory of God will be there, says verse 11. We saw the glory of God in creation. We saw the glory of God in the law. We saw the glory of God in the tabernacle. We saw the glory of God in the temple. But these were pale shadows, says John, compared to the way we will see the glory of God in this new city, part of the new heaven and the new earth. And then finally, it will transform our limited praise into glorious worship. Worship is one of the big themes of Revelation. It's one of the defining characteristics of the new heaven and the new earth because its focus is God. So many people's view of heaven is based on what they want it to be, seeing their loved ones, for example, but it's not about God. You know the old saying that some people are so heavenly-minded they're of no earthly use? Have you heard that saying? I don't think that's reality at all now. I think the reality is quite the opposite, actually. I think the problem is we're so earthly-minded, we're of no heavenly use. You see, if the worship of God is the focus of the new cosmos, then what Revelation points us to is it helps us to get some practice in now. We all find it difficult to express our worship, and I just put that verse there in 1 Corinthians just as an example of the struggles that that church went through with worship. And Paul in the end says, look, just do things in an orderly, decent way. But the worship in this new heaven and this new earth will not be limited by our imperfections. It will be released into glorious worship. There will be no temple, says verse 22. You know, for generations, the temple had been the focus of the worship of the Jewish people. And for some people, it remains that, that, uh, that case. But now, he says, the focus will be the lamb, will be Jesus. Why? Because the temple was only ever a symbol. The Jewish people turned it into a god in itself, and they worshipped it rather than the one it pointed to. And just as a word of warning, don't we do that with our churches sometimes, where we worship the church rather than the God who the church is called to point to. That's the danger of buildings. Now, of course, there are many benefits, but that's the danger of the buildings when the buildings replace the one who they should point to and which becomes a tool uh, for ministry. Revelation gives us a picture where we won't need symbols anymore. We will experience the reality. It's a new cosmos. There are no limitations, no restrictions, no symbols will be needed. The reality has come. God is present in all his greatness. The lamb is there in all his glory. And all eyes and hearts and minds will be fixed on him in glorious worship. Just a closing thought. You see, Revelation is not an escape 
tool from the world. That's the way that revelation has been treated by so many people. That's why it has come into disrepute. Because so many people treat revelation as an escape act from the world. Let's fix our eyes on the future because the world is so bad. The world is getting worse, so let's just concentrate on the future. Judgment is coming. Why bother to change anything? But I think when revelation is interpreted properly and sensibly and correctly, that our view of it changes. If we believe in bodily resurrection and bodily ascension, if we believe the kingdom of God has started but is still to come, if we believe there's a real link between heaven and earth, and if we believe that the new one is coming, doesn't it make more sense to start working and preparing for it now? The New Testament teaching about these things is to encourage and to prepare. We're not told to sit around and wait. We're told to get on and work for it. Wait is not a passive word in Scripture. It's an active word. It means to wait actively. And that applies in our worship and in our ministry. Yep, Revelation's difficult. But in the end, I find it an inspiring call to service and ministry and worship. And we do that in the light of Jesus, who was victorious on the cross, who was victorious in resurrection, who was victorious in ascension, and one day will return victorious to a new heaven and a new earth, which all who follow him and love him will be part of. The question I leave you with is simply this. Do you want to be part of it? Are you just going to escape into these kind of ideas? Or are you going to be part of the new heaven and the new earth?